0: Would you take your Bible, please, and turn to Genesis, chapter thirty-five. Genesis chapter thirty-five. This morning we'll cover the entire chapter as we kind of come to the close of what's known as the the Jacob narratives. There's one more chapter that I guess could serve as the end or the beginning of the next, and. Next Sunday, we'll be, uh, we will not be in Genesis as we're remembering uh, the resurrection of Christ. We'll be uh, in a text that uh, more clearly expresses that. But also, uh, when we come back uh, after Easter, we will not come to Genesis and we'll put, put a pin in this and uh, return to Genesis at a later date as we, this morning, kind of wrap up the Jacob narratives so I'll, I won't read all of it at the beginning. We'll read through it as we go. But let's just pause for a prayer and ask the Lord to uh, guide us in, in, our, in our time in his word. Father, what we know not, teach us. And what we have not, give us. What we are not, kindly make us. For your son's sake, amen. you know, if you've ever had any lengthy conversation with me, you may have heard me talk about uh, the fact that I like to watch TV or movies. I like to read. I like to do other stuff. I know some of you, movies or TV is not really a big deal to you, uh, but I do enjoy those. I'm not what you call a movie critic. I'm just, I just like watching them. I like to, to see what's going on. And as I was reading through Genesis 35, it kept reminding me of a certain type of, of uh, element within a TV series that I couldn't really put my finger on. I didn't really know what it what it was, what, what you would call that uh, in uh, what I was seeing in 35 compared to what I see in, uh, in television sometimes. And so I did a little research trying to figure that out, and, and I asked the, the trusty Google, uh, what in the world is the word I'm trying to come up with? And. It's this idea uh, that every so often if you're watching a television series, you'll see this, this one particular episode that just is full of flashbacks. And it just it doesn't seem to really go anywhere else, but it's, just, it's pausing for a moment to think about uh, many, many times that it was going back through. And there's actually a, a word for that, and it's actually a, 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 a technique that is used uh, often in television. Uh, and it's called, they're called clip shows, or for short, they're called... Clip episodes. And a clip episode is that, is, is that very idea where uh, you ha- spend an episode uh, just doing flashbacks to earlier events and, uh, in the series. Sometimes, uh, they, TV producers will use uh, clip shows as filler within the uh, episode uh, count. They have been contracted to do so many episodes, and they frankly have run out of ideas. And so they will fill uh, one of their contractual obligations by uh, basically just filling a show, filling the time. And it's not giving us anything new, but we're just remembering what's going on. Sometimes uh, they will use a clip show to catch the audience up. Uh, you, those of you who can remember, what before television was on demand, if you missed last Tuesday's show, you had to wait until the summertime when they did reruns. You had no idea what was going on. And so in that structure, a clip show might be helpful if you happen to miss one or two of the episodes leading up to this. And so the audience wouldn't get lost as they were moving forward. Genesis 35 is definitely a, a chapter that includes flashbacks. But I don't think that I would go as far as to call it a clip show... Or a cliposote. Uh, it is not filler. There's not uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit, uh, the writer, or the human writer Moses is not running out of ideas and trying to figure out how he can fill the 35th chapter and somehow put in a, put a bow on this series. Uh, it's also uh, not as it does maybe seem as you if you were to read through it. It's not the place where they just threw all the rest of the facts in because they couldn't figure out where else it was going to go. If you read Genesis 35, in, in, in a way, it can sound choppy. It, there's a verse just this inserted there, and we're not really sure at first glance why, what it's doing as we read through that. Let me just assure you as we read through this that this is not the intention of the writer of Scripture. Uh, Genesis 35 is a... Is is intended to draw us back to some very important truths that have been expressed to us in the previous chapter. So in that sense, we do see that's why we'll see some flashbacks. But at the same time, Genesis 35 is here to summarize and to conclude the Jacob story or the Jacob narratives. And if we've been paying attention to all the parts of the Jacob story, we see that uh, everything comes full circle. The narrative comes full circle at the end. The chapter itself begins and ends with this uh, reference to uh, the, the, the beginning and the ending of the story, the, the idea of Esau and the struggle that was there, and Esau is present at both the beginning and the ending of the chapter. But at the same time, this particular chapter is serving as the end bracket, if you will, of what what I'm calling the Jacob narrative, or the Jacob story. It kind of began in chapter 28, and now we see it ending in chapter 35. Jacob doesn't die at the end of this chapter, but it's the end of the focus on Jacob. And as chapter 36 will be all about Esau, chapter 37 will begin with the focus on Jacob's sons. Now, as we think about this in a summary fashion, as we recall the events of the things that have been happening over the past few chapters, and really we've covered 20 plus years in the life of Jacob, we could easily come, uh, draw uh, instances that would support the idea that a lot has happened. There's been a lot going on in the past 20 years in Jacob's life. Genesis, uh, Genesis 35 uh, documents the return of Jacob's exile in Haran. Jacob had, had, had to leave his homeland, leave his family because of how he uh, mistreated his, his brother and, and uh, deceived his father and stole the blessing and, and so on and so forth. And finally, 20-something years later, Jacob is returning from his exile. And much has changed over those years. He left alone. There's a place earlier when he even acknowledged, I left, I crossed the river with the staff in my hand. And now he comes back with several wives and several children and lots and lots of wealth and servants. Personally, Jacob has matured over the past few chapters. We've seen him grow as a man and as a uh, a leader of his family. But while many things have changed some things are still the same. Namely, two. The promise receiver continues to prove himself unfaithful, and the promise giver continues the same. The promise giver remains unchanging and faithful to his word. So this morning, I want us to see as we consider these verses... I want us to see God's unchanging nature. And I want to demonstrate to you how that unchanging nature of God is the basis for his unchanging promises. And our failures as the people of God, Jacob's failure as the, as the, as the man of God here, does not void the promises that God gives And finally, because of the enduring promises of God, we, as the people of God, must believe them and live by them. There's a lot there. Let's summarize it all into this one little statement that will govern our time in the text. God's promises endure, though his people do not. And he is faithful even though we are not. God's promises endure, though his people do not, and he is faithful to his covenant, though we are not. As we look at the story in Genesis 35, we can divide it into four parts. And I think this is helpful for us as we see what's happening here. And if you have the notes before you in the bulletin, you'll see how this has been divided up. Four four different pieces to the story... We're either finding events that are happening while they're traveling to a place or events that are happening at the place. So if you look through there, verses 1 through 5 talk about going to Bethel. Then we talk about what happens at Bethel. Then we talk about what happens as they're going to... uh, 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 I can't remember. uh, I was going to say Haran all of a sudden, but that, that, that name slipped my mind. They're heading to Hebron. And then... Finally, the last three verses, uh, the the events that happen at Hebron. Now, in each of the four parts, we find both a burial and a blessing. Someone told me this morning, I think we're going to a funeral based on the notes. Uh, We're not, actually, but we will visit four of them, okay? Uh, We will see four burials and four instances of blessing in each one of them. So let's begin and look in verse number one, where God says to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Back to Bethel. There's an old hymn with that title there. Back to Bethel, where God had promised his presence, where God had promised his protection, where God had promised provision. This is where God wanted him to be. Jacob has not been at Bethel since the first time he left and maybe the first night, who knows how long it took him to get there from where he was uh, when he left home. But this is the place of the vow and the vision of the ladder, of God at the top, of the promises when God first made these promises, not to anybody, but to Jacob specifically. This is the sacred place to Jacob This is the place where Jacob vowed back in chapter 28... "...if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go... ...and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear... ...so that I come again to my father's house in peace... ...then the Lord shall be my God... ...and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house... ...and of all that you give me I will give a tenth to you." Now God is telling him essentially... ...go do what you said you were going to do. It is time to pay your vows... And that's what we find Jacob doing in verse number 2. Jacob says to his household, it's time to go. And notice what he says. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. It's time to go back to Bethel. It's time to dwell in Bethel. And it's time to worship. But... In order to rightly worship God, the idols must be destroyed. So he tells his family to put away these gods. Notice that there are multiple gods here. We know of one, right? Rachel stole her father's gods when they left Haran. But he's not just speaking to Rachel. He's speaking to everybody, which causes us to wonder just how many people were were, were serving these idols, worshipping these idols. And it doesn't tell us, but Jacob does say, he knows about it, and he says it's time to put them away. Let's have a funeral for these gods. Because to worship God rightly requires the death of idols. We cannot come to worship with idols in our possession, with idols in our hearts. And so even the language that he uses there uh, is, is uh, similar to pl- other places that we, have, uh, that we read on in Scripture. When Joshua is preparing the people to enter the promised land, he tells them, uh, at the end of his his book at least, he tells them, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. We're here in the land that God has promised us. We're here to worship this God. We're here by this God's generosity and graciousness. Let's put away all the other gods ...and serve him alone. He says later on in verse 23... ...put away the foreign gods that are among you... ...and incline your heart to the Lord... ...the God of Israel. Later on, the prophet Samuel... ...will say the exact same uh, instruction... ...to the people of Israel. In verse uh, chapter 7, verse 3, Samuel says... ...if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart... ...then put away the foreign gods... ...and the Ashtaroth from among you... ...and direct your heart to the Lord... ...and serve him only... This is uh, an essential act of worship to remove the idols that are in our lives, to remove the false gods, the foreign gods that are at odds with the one true God. We cannot genuinely worship God when there are idols in our hands. So Jacob here is not simply returning to a place. He is returning to the worship of the one true God. And he's directing his family to do this. This is the God that he said in verse 3, is the, the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. Jacob has experienced the power and the protection of God Almighty and he desires that when they approach God at Bethel, they do so genuinely and without the idols. And so he buries the gods under the tree in verse number 4. But we see also blessing that comes from this in verse number 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them... ...so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Remember at the end of chapter 34, after Simeon and Levi massacre all of the people in Shechem... ...and they take all of these prisoners and hostages and, and they steal all the stuff... ...and they've killed all the men... Jacob's response is, what are the nations going to think? What are they going to do? And Jacob is terrified of what the nations might do. But verse 5 tells us that the nations are terrified of Jacob. Why? Because God has brought this terror upon them. Because once again, God is protecting his people as they go to the place he has called them to go. This fear that Jacob has isn't even an issue as the nations do not pursue him and are terrified of him. The uh, the, the, the writer of, of yesteryear, Matthew Henry, wrote of this, God governs the world more by secret terrors on men's minds than we're aware of. Doesn't even tell us that Jacob knew all that was happening around him, but he noticed that nobody was chasing them. Nobody was harassing them, and it was because God did something for him. And it goes to remind us here, I've said it many times, and it bears repeating, that God is far greater than any of us can imagine. He does more than we realize. His power, it goes beyond our understanding. And His rule over every aspect of creation, including the pagan nations, is sovereign and supreme. It's not just that God rules over the people who bow to Him. No, God rules over creation, including those who resist his will. Well, we see the second section in verse number 6, and now they get to Bethel. And so we are not just traveling to Bethel, now we are at Bethel. And verse number 6, Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El-Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled ...from his brother. He pays his vows. He does that which God commanded him to do. And he names the place El Bethel. Bethel means house of God. So El Bethel means God of the house of God. Or God of Bethel. And and this is becoming a significant place. And it already has been. It's becoming even more significant. It will continue to be a significant place... uh, uh, ...for the nation of Israel. But right away we read of of another death... ...and a funeral... Verse number 8, And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan-Bakuth. The mention of Deborah is kind of curious here. We've only seen her referred to one other time, and that was all the way back at the beginning, not at the beginning of Jacob's story, but the beginning of the Isaac and Rebekah story. In chapter 24, when the servant brought Rebekah back to Isaac, it says that she brought her nurse. This would be that nurse. This would be, uh, this would be Deborah. It's kind of mystery how Deborah gets here and what she's doing here and why she's mentioned. But it should be noted that the fact that Jacob names the, the spot of her burial the Oak of Weeping implies that she was a very special member of the family. She was very special both to Jacob and and his family. And the death of Deborah represents, among several others, a closing of one chapter in Jacob's life. The past, the people of Jacob's past are passing off the scene and they're moving to a new uh, place in life. Her death as well is a reminder, once again, of the curse of sin and death. But we find right away a blessing with the burial. In verse number uh, 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. This is the blessing. In a sense, it's the same blessing that's been given before. This is not the first time that we read of God calling him Israel. This is not the first time that we've read of God giving the blessing specifically to Jacob. In fact, it's the same blessing that was given to Abraham. It's the same blessing that was passed on to Isaac. It's now the blessing that's repeatedly given to Jacob. But here, we find the same blessing with even greater clarity. We find that here God opens up this promise a little bit further so that they can see a little bit clearer what is going to happen. Specifically, we see the promises of land and descendants happening, but notice with the people, it's not just lots of people, but it's lots of people in number, great in, in, great in number and great in importance. Kings, not only descendants, but kings of nations. And what this reminds us here is that God still hasn't changed his mind. The repetition of the blessing is a reminder that God still intends to do what he promised to do. There is no changing of his mind even though the men that God has given this promise to have proven themselves unfaithful time and time and time and time again. The deaths remind us of the uh, of the. Uh, of that we, we're living in a world where there is sin and, 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 and time is short. But the promises here, the blessing repeatedly given to us, reminds us that, it doesn't, uh, that does the, the deaths of people and the sins of the people have not affected God's promises. If you look on in verse number 16 and we see the, second, or the third section, the second traveling uh, narrative as they journey then from Bethel on. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. We have our third funeral. This is the death and burial of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. It doesn't say much about her, but we know that she has received the desire of her heart. Uh, when she gave birth to her only son, Joseph, uh, his, she named him Joseph because it means, may God give me another one. And God grants that here with this new son. And the midwife tries to bring some comfort to her as she's dying because she will not survive the child uh, the childbirth. Uh, Rachel will not receive the comfort and she named the son Benoni. Benoni means son of my sorrow. She's She's not happy, she's sad, and she names her son this. But Jacob will not uh, allow that to be his name, and so he renames him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Very likely because Jacob would not want to be reminded of Rachel's sorrow at every mention of his son's name. We'll find later on that Joseph, uh, when Joseph is presumed dead, that Benjamin becomes his favorite son. Then we, and, so, and once again, we're reminded of the sting of death and the sting of sin. And then verse 22, as I said several times, there's these places where we just find this verse that seemingly is just inserted here. But in verse 22, While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Nothing more is said for now. But we are intended to know this for some reason. Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob... Uh, presumably the one who received the blessing, getting the birthright and all of these things, uh, takes his stepmother, the wife of uh, Jacob, uh, and the mother of two of his brothers here, uh, and and lies with her. Uh, Some have suggested that this is uh, Reuben's attempt to prevent Bilhah from uh, becoming the favorite wife because Bilhah was Rachel's servant, Rachel the favorite wife, so now maybe Reuben is thinking, the servant of the favorite wife will gain more status than my mom Leah, who is the hated wife. And so maybe he feels maybe this is a, an attempt to to kind of uh, mar that uh, that that reputation there, or, uh, and, or and or this is a, a challenge to his father's authority, like Absalom in Second Samuel 16. But all we get to read of this right now is that Jacob heard of it, and he will remember what his oldest son did as we get down. Uh, down to the end of uh, when they, he blesses the children. This may, as I mentioned Sunday night, I think it was, this may help us to understand better why Judah is the one that will kind of receive the greatest blessing with the, with the, uh, the kingly line because he, uh, Reuben has disqualified himself, Simeon and Levi have disqualified themselves in chapter 34. That brings Judah to the front of the line. Although Judah is no uh, a choir boy himself, uh, but he will become, uh, he will become the, the, the kingly line. In the midst of the sin, in the midst of the death, in the burial of the favorite wife, we find a blessing. Even more so, in the middle of it, we find the blessing because the the pain of death was actually what brought the blessing of Benjamin, the twelfth son. And not only is it a twelfth son, another son, but we have the listing here of all the sons in verse 23. The sons of Leah, Reuben... Uh, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and so on and so forth, with all of the sons of the of the uh, of, of the of, of the man Jacob here, who will eventually become not just fathers in their own right, but heads of tribes of a nation. And maybe this is too far for Jacob to see just yet. But think about this for a moment. As I said earlier, the promises have been given to Jacob with much clarity because God gave Abraham the promise, but Abraham only had one son. God then gave Isaac that promise, and he only had two sons, and one of those sons was clearly not part of the blessing. It was only going to one. But now Jacob has 12 sons, all of whom will be heads of the tribe of the blessed nation of Israel. And finally, verse 27 He arrives in Haran on Hebron. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Here we have the blessing and the burial reversed, and we find the blessing first. He finally makes it home. This is what Jacob had asked all along. In his vow, originally at Bethel, he had said, if I return to my father in peace. And it's taken 20 plus years, but it's finally happened. And he has been brought to his father in peace. And in that vow, Jacob had asked, if God will simply provide me food and clothes and safety, God has done so much more. God has given him a family that is not only great now, but will be greater in days to come. God has given him far more than food and clothing. He's given him great wealth, great prominence in the land. What a blessing to return to his father's house and to see his father. Now, this is not a chronological thing, so it's important it's significant that the writer included this here. If we do the math of, the, of the, the life of Isaac, Isaac was alive when Joseph was sent into Egypt, which happens after that. So we're not reading a chronological story here, and so it was inserted so we can identify this blessing before we identify the burial, because Isaac does eventually die 180 years And it marks the end of one patriarch and the continuing of the promise with the next. And that's significant. Because as long as Isaac lived, the promise endured even longer. And as long as Jacob was alive, the promise would endure even longer. What are we to gain from this? Well, the meaning here is very simple. That we are God's, faithfulness is seen every step of the journey despite Jacob and his family's disobedience. Someone once wrote, only God's covenant promise can explain why this small family escaped disaster after disaster and was preserved intact. Because they did go through many scary times and yet they were preserved every time. Here it is again, God's promises endure though his people don't. And his promises are faithful, though his people aren't. The promise doesn't end when a certain generation dies, whether it be Deborah, whether it be Rachel, whether it be his father Isaac. The promise continues because the promise giver hasn't changed. The deaths and the burial remind us that many things in life may change. But the repetition of the blessing reminds us that though all may change, but Jesus never. God is unchanging. He's always the same. Though our lives are a vapor and a mist, God is eternal and unchanging. In Malachi, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. In Hebrews chapter 1, it goes on to say that heaven and earth are going to perish, but you, God, remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Of course, the very simple but profound statement in Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, forever. Now listen, because God is unchanging, his promises then are unchanging, which means that we can count on them. When we read of the promises of God, when we are told of the promises of God, we are meant to take them to the bank. We are meant to rely on them. We read Psalm 105 in our call to worship, and there the verse in verse 8 says that he remembers his covenant forever for a thousand generations. Now, we're not really sure exactly how long a generation is, but that's a long time, isn't it? A thousand generations? Especially when we consider that the one who wrote this it's in Psalm 105, Deuteronomy. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Moses lived over 100 years old. It was written in a time when Isaac lived to be 180 years old. A long time. and It goes to remind us that the promises of God are unchanging. They were unchanging promises when they were passed from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, and down to his sons, and eventually to you and to me. It's because of God's unchanging covenant. It's because of God's unchanging promises that any of us today can be a part of it. If it was up to man, the promise would have been voided a long time ago because man does not keep the covenant. But God does. The New Testament teaches us that we can be sons of Abraham by faith. Romans 4.16, Paul says, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. That's why we can say with Peter in Acts 2 that the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And it's not because you or I have been faithful or obedient. Because we're not. Because it doesn't take long for us to come up with reasons why we would have disqualified ourselves from God's promises. Jacob's story and every human story that there is reminds us that man continually fails. But our failings and our sins do not void the promises of God. Because God's promises are based on his faithfulness not ours Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9 says know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations but notice there's that little qualifier though he keeps covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments and if if we're looking at ourselves we can say that is not me But that's what Paul was getting at in Galatians 3, which is why I asked Pastor Sears to read Galatians 3 for us this morning. There's a lot to unpack there, but listen to what he's saying, what Paul is arguing and stressing in chapter 3, verse 16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ he says. Verse 19, he then says that the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring could come to whom the promise has been made. Talking about Christ again. And when Jesus came and kept the covenant and perfectly obeyed all of it and died and rose again and ascended, we can enjoy the benefit and the blessing of all of that. He obeyed, we benefit. He uh, submitted, we benefit. We benefit. We don't obey all the time, but he did, and we received the benefits from it. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We rejoice, we trust, we rest in Christ's perfect obedience, his keeping of the covenant, not our own. And that's a wonderful truth. It's the gospel, folks. But let's take it a little further and, and, and think about that we are not simply meant to know these things. We are not simply meant to know that the promises of God exist. We are meant to believe them and to live by them. The promises are given to us to recognize the past faithfulness of God, not just in our lives, but all through history, so that we may rely on His faithfulness in the past, And rely on His faithfulness going forward. God's faithfulness then demands our loyalty to Him. Our service to Him. Our submission to His will. And our obedience to His law. But the promises endure outside of our obedience. And it is exactly because these promises endure. That we must believe them and live by them. Maybe this means then that we have idols that need to be buried, like Jacob. We don't know how they got there. We don't know where they came from, but they are certainly in our lives and they need to be buried. That's why Colossians 3 says, Put to death what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Are there idols in your heart? Are there idols in your hands? You cannot rightly worship God when you're holding on to the foreign gods. Maybe like Joshua, we need to put away the foreign gods that are among us and incline our heart to the Lord. Because by the mercy of God and by the faithfulness that he has to his word, our idols have not voided his promises, but they must be destroyed. Maybe this means that we need to realize that the promises are for us not just for them, not just for the people in Israel's day, not just for the, 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 our grandfathers and our, and, our, and, our, and our fathers, but for us too. Maybe it's time that some of us stop playing games with our religion, going through the motions of what it means to be a Christian and begin to take this seriously. Like Joshua said, Uh, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You do what you think you need to do, but I'm going to serve the Lord. It's time that we take our faith in Christ seriously. Or maybe we need to realize that though God's promises will remain, we will not. You and I will not be here forever. In the light of eternity, you and I will not be here for long. And there are people coming after us who need to know the promises, who need to believe those promises. We must be faithful to tell the next generation about God's promises, about his faithfulness to his word, about his care and his provision and his protection. As we sang, let's teach them so that the people he has yet to make will to the Lord lift up their praise. It's not just for the past, it's for the present and it's not just for the present it's for the future the deaths that we read about here remind us of the curse of sin that our world is full of sorrow and loss grief and sorrow the blessings though remind us that in it all god is faithful he's true to his word for a thousand generations the jacob narrative ends But the story is far from over. Jacob will live on for many more years. He'll live on to the end of the book. But now the focus shifts to his sons. The promises then point ahead to these future generations. Ultimately, they point to the one who will faithfully receive the promise and keep the covenant as a true son of Abraham and the only begotten son of God. Today the story continues as people continue to hear God's promise, to believe them, to testify to his faithfulness, and by faith enjoy present blessings and await future glory. All promised to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given exceeding great and precious promises. We thank you on top of that because you have not left it up to us. You have called us to yourself. You have given life to dead people, open blinded eyes and deaf ears, people who couldn't hear the call, people who wouldn't hear the call. if We could, and you made us sons and daughters. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Lord, may our hearts be stirred beyond just giving thanks. May they be stirred to obedience. May we be stirred to bury the idols in our lives. Or recognize that the promise is for us and for our children. To faithfully receive the promises and Enjoy the blessings of them today and teach them to our children so that they may know the same God and teach their children. Lord, we know that we'll fail in this because we have seen everybody else has and we know we will. We've seen it in our own lives. Your word remains. Our sins are many. Your mercy is more. and Your covenant lasts longer than we do. What a wonderful, wonderful God you have shown yourself to be. Lord, we want to know more about you, more about the promises, how we might live in them more faithfully. We would see Jesus as we read the pages of Scripture, as the Spirit opens them up to us and shows us just how obedient Christ was and just how wonderful it is that Christ is our high priest and our brother who made it possible and made it effectual for us to be in your family. Help us please this.